you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What is so powerful about the question why? Is the path to success a straight road or a crooked and winding path? How is skateboarding related to corporate finance? Join us for the circuitous answers on today's podcast. Hey there, innovators. Today's interview is with a guest from the future. I won't spoil the surprise on that one. I love to elicit questions. I believe that questions are essential to life. And I'm in good company because Voltaire said, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. I am fond of the idea that answers are very short-lived while questions can be self-perpetuating and almost immortal. If I ask, how does water fall? You could say, under the influence of gravity, water falls at 9.8 meters per second squared, and that answer takes less than five seconds to say. But if I accept the answer, that's the end of my curiosity in that direction. However, it turns out that the answer just given is only a small part of the processes possible with water. By hooking a water hose to a speaker or mixing water with ethylene glycol or watching water drop into sand, hundreds and thousands of new questions arise, each leading to more questions. I'll link a couple of those uh, videos to those kind of things up in uh, YouTube. You'll, you'll have lots of questions, I promise. Our guest today calls this the search for why. This simple word can lead to the farthest reaches of outer space or to the inner universes of atoms, nuclei, and even stranger things. Here at Tabletop Inventing, we believe that the best questions don't have simple answers. Complexity and the intricacy of the real world can be a vehicle to a never-ending stream of inspired questions. Questions are the beginning of a quest, and quests can lead to all sorts of interesting places. Our after-school Inventors Guild classes in Thousand Oaks and Hesperian Orange County this fall are designed to be the genesis of intelligent questions, not simple run-of-the-mill answers. To learn more, email classes at ttinvent.com or visit inventingzone.com. Today's interview was recorded on a Sunday from a guest on Monday. How is that possible? Well, David Sito is an interesting character, and I connected with him while he was in Hong Kong on Monday, which was Sunday afternoon here in California. David has tried everything from law to finance, and is now even trying his hand at entrepreneurship. He grew up in New York City, and his parents literally owned and operated a mom-and-pop store. Let's find out how a kid from New York City grew up to be a curious coordinator of corporate finance. So my guest today is David Sito. Uh, he's a former banker and finance chief uh, turned entrepreneur. 
He's technically from New York City, but he's been uh, living in China and in different parts of Asia for uh, quite a while. And right now he's particularly proud of his five-year-old daughter, and he's looking forward to creating things with his daughter. And he's got a new company, and we'll get into all of those things in due time. But David, why don't you tell us a little more about yourself? Hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for asking me on your podcast. Like you said before, I'm, I'm from New York City. I, I, I spent most of my early years there. And uh, we lived in uh, Manhattan in, uh, on the Lower East Side in New York City. And uh, I remember I spent a lot of time skateboarding in New York City in the Lower East Side because that's when skateboarding just came out. And I remember uh, skateboarding, particularly around Wall Street, Wall Street area, because uh, on Sundays, on weekends, that was a very good place to skateboard. And I guess that sort of drew me to the whole Wall Street and finance scene. And so I, as, I, as I went to college, uh, et cetera, I sort of just naturally drawn to finance, which sort of ended me up in working at a bank in Hong Kong for eight years. And from there, I moved on to Beijing to live for 10 years. And living in Beijing, I left the banking industry and I actually went into corporate finance, uh, where I was the CFO for a company there. And then from there, I was there for eight years as well. And I thought, okay, uh, let's try the next big thing. Towards the end of that tenure, I came across The Economist magazine. Uh, uh, on, on the cover, they had a photograph of a violin. And there was a caption at the bottom that says, this is a 3D printed Stradivarius violin. And below that it says, and it plays beautifully. And I tell you, even now as I relay this information to you, I, I, I get goosebumps. I mean, that for me, was my uh, light bulb moment. That was like, whoa, what's going on here? What's, what's this 3D printing thing? Because I had never heard of it before I saw that cover. I think that was about three years ago now. And uh, from, from that moment on, I just spent, well, at the beginning, a lot of my free time looking into 3D printing and then more earnestly in the last two years looking into it, uh, which is uh, where I came to today, which is uh, running a startup. I'm a managing director for a company called 3D Roundhouse. We just launched a press release last week, and we're here to let uh, people know about it. Cool. Well, I'd like to back up a little bit and find out a little bit about exactly how skateboarding led to the finance. <laughs> so when you, were, when you picked up skateboarding, I mean, were you like 10, 12, 14? About what age were you when you picked up the skateboarding Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I guess around 12, 12 to 14, something like that. It was back in the 70s. I'm a, kind of an old guy. It was back in the 70s when skateboarding just literally just came out. And I still remember the transition from roller skating to skateboarding. And, you know, back in the 70s, roller skating, this was before the polyurethane wheels. This is when roller skates still had those steel wheels and the ball bearings. And the first round of skateboards actually came with those steel wheels. I, I still remember that. And just at that time, they, they said, hey, this polyurethane works much better. And, and I remember getting one of the first skateboards that had those wheels. It was an exciting time for, for, for that particular sport. So what drew you to Wall Street for the skateboarding? Was there a particular set of things near Wall Street? or? Oh, no, no. It, it was purely the landscape. If you live on the Lower East Side, if you go to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, I mean, it's a lot of traffic. And on weekends... You want to go to a place that's close by with not a lot of traffic. And so on weekends, because Wall Street is closed, right, all those offices, buildings are closed. There's, no, there's not much traffic. There's, there's not much pedestrians. There's not much shopping. That's, that's just, it just turned out that way. And so that's how you end up skateboarding around there. So what led from skateboarding at Wall Street to an interest in what they did on Wall Street? 
<laughs> That's the real question. I guess the other link, the other missing link, was my dad. Actually, he ran a literally a mom and pop grocery store. My mom and my father were ran this grocery store also in the Lower East Side in Chinatown, in New York City. As a side hobby, he would invest in stocks, like penny stocks. He was a penny stock investor, and so I would always hear him on the phone talking with his broker. And when he's at home, he's watching the ticket. You know, wherever's on the TV, again the prices of the stocks or looking at the newspaper, get the price of the stocks. And I guess that also drew me to the Wall Street as well. So you had a couple of different influences. What were the first kinds of things that you did to kind of get curious about Wall Street? I mean, was it looking in the newspaper and looking at the stock prices like your dad had done or was it taking a finance class? What was that first step in that direction for you? Well, the real first step actually didn't happen until much later when I was in university. And the, when I attended the University of Chicago, I mean, there was a big economics department there, very, very famous economics department. And so that propelled me to, to, to look into economics, which sort of evolved into finance. I actually had a sidetrack. I actually took a detour into, into a legal career, which only lasted for about a year. After university, I did a year as a paralegal. But then after that, I realized that this is not really working out for me. So I, I went back to economics, economics and finance. Interesting. So how would you characterize the time from, you know, skateboarding at 12 or 14 out in Wall Street to being in college? Was that an exciting time educationally or were you just kind of making it through because you're doing what you had to do? When did the excitement for learning start for you? I think it didn't really happen until university. I mean, the high school was a pretty good high school in New York City, uh, Xavier High School. But I guess Back then, you know, you're a teenager, you're still looking for yourself. You really don't really have much of a focus, right? In high school, you don't have to major in anything. Uh, in college, you're expected to major in something. So I, I looked around, I thought, okay, this, this makes more sense for me. Given my family history and family act well, activity when I was younger, when I was in university, uh, and also, you know, it also helped a lot that the, that the University of Chicago had a very excellent economics program. I mean, it was just top notch. And also there, I learned something very important, uh, which is actually, it doesn't even matter what industry that you're in. It doesn't even matter what major that you're in. They taught me and I learned there that it's very important to keep learning, to keep asking a very simple question, why? And you, you want to do this for anything. I mean, for, for you know, whether it's economics or, or finance or, or medical or architecture, Always ask why. And if you always ask why to yourself, you'll always be in a position where you're always trying to improve yourself. For me, I think that's very, very important. And actually, that kind of thinking just permeates everything I try to do. So was it a particular teacher or was it your department? Where did that idea come from? Can you trace that back to someone? Oh, it's not someone. It actually, it, it, that philosophy permeates the entire university. In fact, I, I don't know if it's the case now, but when I was attending the university back in the 80s, there was actually a statue in the middle of the quad, and the, the name of the statue was Why. <laughs> Everyone needs to ask why. Interesting. Everyone begins to be curious at some point about some things, but it doesn't always happen around education. You know, sometimes it happens very much apart from education, but for you, it started on the college campus, and you remember this sculpture on the quad and how did that affect like your study habits or, or other things that you did at the university? I literally struggled with uh, during university it was because in the high school years right you're sort of taught matter you're, you're taught information and then you get a test 
right? And then most of the time, you just regurgitate the information, right? And, and so as a result of that, I think you probably know a lot of people who do the same. It's, there seems to be like a focus on short-term memory. Yeah. You have a test tomorrow. You just study everything. You just cram it the night before. Whereas university, I mean, there's still that component. But ultimately, if you really want to do well in university, you really have to think beyond that. You have to think sort of a little bit outside the box as well. And that's one thing I really struggled with because at the beginning, I said, okay, I did well in high school. I'll just do the same thing in university. I'll just, just regurgitate everything. And I realized hey, if I just regurgitate everything, I'm not going to get a good score. In fact, that's exactly what happened. I didn't really get a good score in the first few years. It was a struggle. I was like, why? you know, I, I learned everything, but why am I still not doing well in school? And as I sort of learned to go through the process, I realized, hey, wait a minute, there's actually a uh, a greater reward for those students who can think beyond what is being taught and present themselves in a, in a more out-of-the-box type of way. And that's, you know, and even today I'm still struggling with that. You know, whatever, whatever I'm doing, I'm always wondering, hey, is there another way to do it better? Can I, can I address this in a way that is more creative and, and it can make the whole process a little bit smoother, a little bit easier? So, as you were at the university, what was it that took you to finance? Was it just the thinking back, or was there a particular professor or some friends that influenced you? How did you end up picking finance as a major? Well, for, for me, uh, it was economics as a major. The university doesn't have a business category as a major. It doesn't have a finance major either. It, it, it's just economics. And so that was the field that was closest to business. Most of the economic majors at the University of Chicago pretty much feel the same way. If you're interested in a business career, you would major in economics. Although, in fact, you know, you learn later that they're actually very different things. Majoring in business and majoring in economics are, can be two very, very different things. After you got your degree in, in economics then, did you go very quickly to Hong Kong or was there a step in between before you stepped out in that direction? Oh, there, was, there were many steps uh, in between. As soon as I left university, I worked at a law firm, and I was a paralegal for about a year, and in the late 80s. And at the time, I realized I needed to improve my language studies. I needed to improve my Mandarin, my Chinese. So basically, that stint at the law firm, I was just there to save the money, check out the legal career, save some money, save enough money to travel to Asia, to Taiwan in particular and to spend two years learning Mandarin. So, yeah, that, that's what I did. I, I went to Taiwan, lived there for two years to learn Mandarin because I got the sense that at the time, China didn't really have that open-door policy until later on, but it was a potential source of business uh, in the future. And so I needed to lock down my Mandarin as much as possible, which led me to that choice of saving money, going to Taiwan, learning Mandarin for two years. And then after that, I came back to New York City. Uh, I spent some time with my parents. Actually, my, grand, my granddad was sort of advanced in age at that time. And I felt a sense that I needed to stay in the New York area to be close to him, to be close to my family as I figure out what to do next. And at the time, I just dabbled in different things. I had spent two years in Taiwan. And this was a time when Taiwan wasn't really fully opened up. And in fact, at the time, they actually had martial law. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of uh, information about Taiwan. So I, I came back and I wrote a student's guide to Taiwan, how to study in Taiwan. And, I, and that was sort of like my first step into entrepreneurship. I, I set up a company in the, in the States and wrote a guidebook with my friend. We tried to treat it as seriously as possible, but because of my inexperience, it didn't really do that well. And after a while, we just stopped doing that. That was another side stint I did. And then 
couple of jobs here and there later, I ended up working at a company called uh, Business International, which is owned by The Economist magazine. And for, for them, I did some business reporting, some finance reporting. And there, that was another short thing. It was like another year or so. And, and finally, I thought, you know, I, I need a master's degree. I need to apply for an MBA. And so I, I signed up at uh, New York University, the MBA school. And there, that's when I focused on finance. That was just pure finance. And so from there, did you kind of take a, a somewhat traditional route into the banking industry? Uh, how, like, how did you end up in the banking industry? Oh, that was actually, <laughs> this is another side story. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of side stories. Because of my past history and interest in the law and in the written word, and then I did some work writing for a newsletter, after I left the finance program at New York University, the MBA program, I ended up working as an analyst on Wall Street. It was a boutique economic forecasting company. And there I did another 18 months where I just wrote reports, you know, economic reports about what's going on in Asia, countries in Asia. So that was another, I guess, a, a side story. You know, I, it's true. I do have a lot of side stories up until the point when I finally moved to Hong Kong in 1994. That's when I just settled down. When I moved to Hong Kong, I found a job at HSBC, which is you know the biggest bank in Hong Kong. And there is where I, I just finally settled down. And I became a, a full-time economist uh, working at the bank, doing economic research, doing forecasts, forecasting exchange rates, forecasting uh, interest rates, uh, forca- forecasting economic growth rates for the bank and for our clients. So tell us a little bit about uh, forecasting. What does that involve? Oh, that was actually a really fun job. You have to see this actually ties back to what happens at the university, right? There's information that is existing in the market. When they say when I say in the market, it means existing in the newspapers, you know, what you see on the live wires like Reuters or Bloomberg. There's that information. And for forecasting, you have to think outside the box. You can either draw a straight line, like let's say you're forecasting a foreign currency value. For example, you want to forecast the movement of the Chinese yuan. Right, which recently got devalued. You can focus at it in a straight line, or you can think out of the box and think of very likely scenarios, which you believe to be very likely, and say that you know under the scenario you can actually see. I can actually see and actually forecast a devaluation in the Chinese yen. For example, that's when the University of Chicago Education really did help me a lot to take the information that's already out there and then think outside the box and figure out okay what's going to happen next. And and that part is where you have your value added as a forecaster. Okay, People want to talk to you because they want to know how things will evolve in the future. So that's when you have to really think out of the box and figure out, okay, what, what are the possible scenarios, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like that would take a lot of experience looking across different trends and different sectors of the society to think about things as big as, for instance, the, the value of the you know, major currency. Yes. Well, it helps to have historical perspective, but actually... It's also, there's a little bit chicken and egg there, right? Because if you have too much historical perspective, you end up being too focused on the history and not thinking of what, what might possibly happen next. So I've seen a lot of very experienced forecasters that they can just tell a lot of stories about what happened in the past. Some of the forecasters that I've come across, or some of the people, some of these consultants that I've come across, I mean, they, they go back to the Henry Kissinger days when you know he went back to China to open the doors for China. 
but you know, they, they, sometimes they sort of lose themselves in that space, and they don't—they're not totally up to date on what's happening in China right now. There's a lot of things that's happening, not just in China, but all through Asia. I mean, there's just growth everywhere, and things are happening very, very fast. So it seems like you have to stay fairly tapped into a large amount of data that's coming across for the whole society to think about something like that. So you did that for a while in Hong Kong for HSBC. How did you end up in Beijing? I was there for six years. One day they came to me and goes, "David, do you want to work in, in in China? You want to focus just on China?" And, and this was early two thousands. And I thought, hmm, "Okay, I've been doing Asia for a while. Why don't I just focus on China?" So they asked me, and I said, "Sure, I'll move to Beijing." And ended up Beijing. I worked with them for two years. And actually, you know, before that, you know, Hong Kong is a very interesting place. I know a lot of people in Hong Kong. I mean, they live in Hong Kong, which is just across the border from China, and so many people don't even go to China. I went to China, but I actually didn't go to China as much as I should have during those six years. And so I thought, you know, China is for me was like a, a new frontier. And so I thought, oh, this is a good chance. So I went ahead and did it. And how long were you in Beijing for? Well, for HSBC, I was there for two years, but I ended up staying for like twelve. In fact, I still have a lot of contact there. I met my wife in Beijing. She is from Beijing, so you know we still have family in Beijing. We have a place in Beijing. So even now, I, I go back to Beijing every two weeks because I do have some、uh, smaller projects that I'm working on for some clients, finance-related projects for some clients in Beijing. So I actually go to Beijing every two weeks. Interesting. And so you mentioned you just like in our initial discussion, you just glossed over just a little bit how you ended up getting interested in 3D printing. Come back to that a little bit now, and in the context of you know the finance and where you were headed in life, how did you end up making this sort of pivot toward toward 3D printing and more toward the entrepreneurship? Actually, I, I can give you another thing. After I left SUSBC, I traveled a lot in China. I, I went to I think pretty much all the provinces, and in my travel, I came across、uh, an American guy who was running a security integration business. And what security integration does is that this company will go to your office, or go to your building, or go to your school, or go to your embassy and set up, you know, those security devices that you see, you know, those cameras, whether it's a camera, whether it's an access point, you know, you know, when you go to a office, you you swipe your card to go in. Yeah. So so this company sets these this system up. Okay.、Uh, the company is called、uh, ICD, and so I worked for him part time initially, but. During those six months, he we we sort of appreciated each other's strengths, and so he says, "David, why don't you just come on full time?" And I said, "Okay, sounds good.、Uh, we we get along." And so he was a pure entrepreneur. He's a fellow from Philadelphia, but、uh, he spent some time in Israel. He also went to China to set up a company and and build a company. And so he was the CEO, and、uh, he hired me as the CFO. And so for, for eight years, I was with him as his CFO, and、uh, I actually also became a small shareholder in the company as well. We took that company from a two million U.S. dollar business to a twenty-five million U.S. dollar business during my eight years there, and、uh, I learned so much from him. I re- I'm so grateful that I I'm so happy. I, I feel so fortunate that I met him, and, and he gave me that entrepreneurial. Interest. I was a CFO, which is really more of a back office type of job, and I, I, because I learned so much from him, I thought、hmm, maybe I can try the same for myself. And so when I left his company, I thought, okay, so maybe this is the time to do it. And here I am today. 
So tell us a little bit about 3D Roundhouse then. You have uh, been thinking about this and you and I first met uh, about a year and a half ago at a 3D printing conference and you were just starting to try some ideas and a lot has happened since then. So catch us up to speed. What have you created and how has that sort of evolved? Yeah, you know, the, the time I met you was the second time I attended that conference, that 3D printing conference. And at the time, I really didn't know, you know, I knew nothing about it. I mean, I, you know, until I did Economist cover, I, I knew nothing about 3D printing. And that's why I was going to those conferences to learn more. And because I don't have that background, I don't have a tech background, you know, there's nothing I can really do directly. I mean, I, you know, I certainly couldn't do the hardware side. I couldn't make a 3D printer to sell. And I wasn't really on the software side either, so I couldn't do any programming related to 3D printing. So the only thing I could do was services. And services, I, I was just struggling. I mean, for easily 18 months, I'm going, what can I do? What can I do? And I just asked myself over and over again, what can I do? And then I came across my partners, my current partners, folks that were similar to myself. They just had a, a young child. And there was one fellow uh, that I met in Beijing, Patrick Click. He's from uh, France. And uh, the first time I met him at a 3D printing meetup, which I organized, he told me he was building a robot. Uh, I said, oh, really? That's very interesting. Goes, yeah, I'm doing it for my son. I go, oh, really? That's really interesting. I didn't know you could do that. So he sort of inspired me a lot to think in terms of, gee, if he is getting into 3D printing for his child. Uh, now, at the time, my child was only two years old, so I, I wasn't even thinking along those lines. But he sort of made me realize, hey, if he's doing this for a son, I, I wonder if other parents would get into 3D printing for their children or with their children as well. So that was just an idea. It, it didn't really manifest it itself in any way until later. Uh, but that was something I just kept in mind, you know, as, as I was researching, I was just looking into this area, and you know, how I can be an entrepreneur in the 3D printing industry. So how did you end up doing some of your initial testing for the concept for the company? Because I assume that you guys have done a little bit of initial testing. Uh, yes, we did. As this idea sort of developed, I just met friends here in Hong Kong, even in Beijing. I said, look, why don't we just do some private workshops and see how this works out? So in Hong Kong, I would go to a friend's house, for example, or hire out a small room, invite uh, my other friends who also had small children to come over and, and just show them, hey, look, this is what I learned using the software to create this object. And I saw the reactions of the parents. I saw the reactions of the children. They're all positive. It's not, never been negative. I just not, I've not had a child that said, you know, I'm not interested. <laughs> They're all into it. It's just amazing. So you have been watching parents and their kids interacting a little bit around uh, the 3D printing. What, what do you notice most about that environment with them? Well, Every parent is slightly different, right? Some parents would prefer to have the kids, hey, you know, enjoy yourself. This is really your gig. And they sort of take a back step. But others, they're actually right in there. I mean, they're all over the laptop with the child. And they're saying, look, uh, let's make it this way. Let's make it this way. So there's, there's a spectrum. But ultimately, when the object is created, you, you see amazing smiles on both of them. And that's, that's what I'm hoping our company can do, to, to reproduce over and over again for parents and children out in the field. Wow. I love that concept and certainly in, like the idea of having parents working together with their kids, you know, inspiring creativity both directions. So as we kind of wind down the interview here a little bit, looking back across your experience with finance and now with uh, entrepreneurship, 
all starting from way back with you know skateboarding on Wall Street. With all that experience behind you and looking now at an education and watching your, your daughter grow up, what does it mean in today's environment to be educated? What does that word educated mean with all the digital tools we have available now? Well, for me, being educated is more like us being in a state of mind. And it does actually go back to the University of Chicago days when you just ask yourself why, right? So for me, in my opinion, it doesn't matter that it's in the digital age. I mean, digital age is great. It gives you more tools. It gives everyone tools, more tools to, to, to use. But as long as you have that mentality of asking why, you will always be in a state of trying to be educated, you know, trying to learn, trying to learn more. And actually, this is where 3D printing becomes very, very useful, right? Like you take a simple object, like a little mug, a coffee mug, right? How do you make that better? How can you make it better, right? So what I'm hoping is that you know, a parent and child can work together to create a mug and say, hey, how can we make this better? How can we make it better? Not just for ourselves, but maybe everyone will like it too. So for me, being educated is being in a state of mind and asking yourself why and asking yourself, how do you make things better? So you're tiptoeing around the edges of my next question, which is the last question we, we always wrap up with, and that is what is the purpose of an education? So from the more philosophical perspective, I mean, what does that mean? You know, what is the purpose of being educated? Well, I think if you ask yourself why and how do you make things better, if you think of it in terms of time, you realize that if you keep asking those questions, every generation that asks why will make improvements. If you're asking why and you're making improvements and things are getting better, then over time, each generation will have a better lifestyle, in, in my opinion. So what's the purpose of having education? To give your children a better life, right? And your children, if they continue this process, they will give their children a better life. And so over time, the purpose of an education is to improve the quality of life for the future. I love it. Well, I think we're going to wrap it right there. And what's the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? They're curious about 3D Roundhouse and how to learn more about that. Oh, you can uh, email me directly, uh, david.setocito at 3droundhouse.com. Or you could just go to 3droundhouse.com and uh, have a look around. We just uploaded all the videos there. Yeah, have a look. I, I think it's a very exciting package. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate you taking some time to interview with us today. Oh, thank you very much, Steve. Good talking to you. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www ttinvent.com slash podcast contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast and be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout out or to remain anonymous you can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com let's discuss your thoughts and questions Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm -hmm.